0: Well, good morning, everybody, and welcome to Resurrection City Church. Uh, my name is Joel, and I am one of the pastors here uh, at Res City. And I just want to thank you for being here with us on this Sunday morning. You could, be, you could be doing anything you wanted right now, and you chose to be here with us, worshiping God together. Um, seeking after him, trying to, as we'll talk about, uh, serve him uh, well in the ways that he's called us to as his people. And so I'm um, glad to have you joining us on this Sunday morning. Um, we're going to get into our message here in just a second, but first let me pray for us before we do. Lord God, we thank you that as we gather together in this place to, to worship you, to, to know you, Lord, to try to grow more like you. Um, I pray that you, your your spirit and your presence would, would join us in this place, God, as we worship, as we uh, as we sit under your word here, uh, Lord. And just in just a second, as we spend time in communion, as we're gathering uh, together uh, afterwards, Lord, as, as your holy people, just be with us, Lord. We pray um, that whatever we do today, Lord, your your presence would be with us. We pray all this in Jesus' name, Amen. All right, so I have a question for you all to start out here. Uh, in your places of work, um, who has a dress code right now, and what? Okay, I have very few hands are going up. That's super interesting. So I had I've read some articles recently about how like dress codes in work is is changing quite a bit, and and that actually can be very confusing for some people. It's kind of like the Wild West in in terms of what to wear. We're kind of seeing more and more, and this is a, a COVID thing apparently. Um, that less and less workplaces are requiring a certain dress code of the people who work there. And we even see that in places like on Wall Street or in government, where places that are, you know, typically like a suit and a tie and high heels kind of, kind of place. Um, and some com- companies are just ditching dress codes entirely. So I don't know if you sort of have that confusion uh, in your place of work now, or, or maybe you're totally fine showing up in sweatpants to work or whatever it is. Um, and, and I was thinking about how, like, that can make... Uh, you know, the advice that you sometimes hear about trying to advance in your work uh, for dressing for the job that you, uh, don't dress for the job that you have, but dress for the job that you want, right? That's advice that maybe you've heard and kind of not having dress codes could maybe make that a little bit more difficult. Um, I think it's, it's helpful advice though. Maybe even if you don't know how I would do that in my work, I still think like that's a really helpful concept because it says, you know, don't, what it's telling us is don't wait for a time uh, that you hope is going to come to start embodying where you want to get to, but get started on that now. Like, and by starting on it now, you're starting to kind of usher in that future. Um, and when you, you know, by doing that, it starts to change who you are in the present, by acting like someone who lives in that future time, of that place that you some, uh, someday hope to be, making you, you know, maybe better at the job that you have now uh, than you would be without it because of the mindset that you've taken on. And so maybe in your place of work, um, you may not know how to dress for the job that you, you know, want to have in the future, but I think Christians, the, the reason I bring this up is because Christians can dress for the world that we want in the future now, and it's very clear what it looks like when we do that. And I want to talk a little bit about that today. So let, let me do this. Let, let, let's jump into... Ro- You know, to start here, as we kind of get a sense for what that means, into Revelation 21. It's one of the very last passages in all of Scripture. And it kind of presents a vision for what heaven is going to look like. All right, so Revelation 21, verses 1 to 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared, and the sea was also gone. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, uh, Look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them, and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne said, Look, I'm making everything new. And then he said to me, Write this down, for what I tell you is trustworthy and true." So what's going on in this passage is we're finding out, we're living in the story of Scripture now, but what we're we're seeing here is that the end goal of the story that we're living in, what we call heaven, is is, is a restored physical world of creation here on earth. That's God's intent. It's not that God wants to see our world be destroyed or abandoned or forgotten or kind of written off as a lost cause where God says, you know, good riddance. They have had their chance. This world just sucks so bad. Let's blow it up and let's, you know, take everybody out of there and they can live in some spiritual place. That's not what heaven is. Heaven is actually a restored creation that God is going to come dwell in one day. And it's described to us as a a society that is completely uh, made whole again, right? A, A city, right? A society and state of affairs that come from heaven that now is true on earth, on earth as it is in heaven, just like Jesus says in the Lord's Prayer. And so we can envision, we can start to dream about what that would look like, right? We don't know for sure what this means, but it starts to get you excited when you think a little bit about what that could be, right? A city with no poverty, with no need for social programs, no gentrification, no pollution, none of those things that we are always struggling with in the cities that we live in now to try to solve, Right? That is not gonna be true one day in heaven, presumably. And the people who live in this city are people who themselves have been restored to wholeness because they have met God. Personally, There's no divide between them anymore, and the wounds of the tragedies that we go through in this life, in this world, become, maybe they still are scars. It's not that we forget that they're there, but they become kind of trophies of what we've gone through to come to this place of wholeness and restoration, a new kind of joy that is only possible when we've maybe gone through and experienced the deep pains of living in this world, but we've had them met. We've had our tears wiped away by God, and now we've come out on the other side. That's what it looks like to live in this new city uh, that that we're being presented in Scripture. Now, Jesus' vision for what we do is we wait for that time because it's one thing to read this, but it's another thing to try to ask the question of what does it look like for us to kind of anticipate or live like we expect this city to come one day? And I really think that the the, the vision that the New Testament and and Jesus and the the other, his followers that have written and left us the documents that make up our New Testament, what it is could be summed up in that advice that we talked about earlier. Don't dress for the world that you have dress for the world that you're waiting for God to bring. That's what it looks like for us to live in the present here, in the here and now, right? To be clear, we can't force it to happen. Just like just by dressing a certain way at work, can't force your boss to give you a promotion, right? But we uh, can start to become the people who will embody this city uh, one day in the future, in the present, and start to in the small ways that we can do it now, start to transform our spheres of influence so it looks a little bit more like heaven in our own day-to-day. And so I think being disciples of Jesus means following the Jesus who says, look, I'm making everything new by trying to make things new in the present, here, now. And that's what we're going to talk about today, all right? We're in a sermon series called No, Grow, Go Together. And what it is, is it's us walking through our sort of basic principles of discipleship, a kind of framework for how we think, you know, what the Christian life ought to look like, what we sort of strive to be doing as a church constantly. We put it into these four different words, no, grow, go, uh, together right? It's something that we want to kind of come back to as a church, to sort of leave here after we finish this series, but build off of and, and point people back towards when they're trying to understand, what is, the, what, what is Res City trying to accomplish? What, what do we think it looks like to follow Jesus? We can say, well, here's a series that you can maybe look at and start uh, to know what discipleship might look like or how we think of it here as a church. We think as a disciple of Jesus, we should actively be embodying and seeking after all four of these things. Maybe not just picking one or two that we feel like come easy to us or that we enjoy a little bit more, but trying to say all four of these is what it looks like, a f- fully uh, uh, flourishing in each, each individual disciple's life. These four things is what it looks like to follow after Jesus. And so far, we've done know, where we kind of broke that into two parts of knowing God, knowing him um, personally as our Abba, as our Father, of having God be an actual reality in our lives, not just an abstract idea, but then engaging that, and this was the second sermon, with our minds. And then the last two weeks, we've talked about what it looks like to grow as a result by talking about bearing fruit and following Jesus in Christlikeness. And we're starting now to go into this, this concept of go, Right? And for us, go means these two things, service and invitation. Okay? Service and invitation. Now, invitation is about disciple replication, about inviting other people to become disciples of Jesus. And next week, Nathan Van Zee is going to uh, give us a message on that. I'm very excited for that. Um, but this week, we're going to talk about this idea of service, right? doing the work of the future city now, dressing for the restored world that Jesus will bring here in the present. Okay, Now, it's vitally important, I think, that we see these two, service and invitation, as not being things that we break off and pit against each other. I think that can happen sometimes in the church. That would have been very foreign to Jesus and to his early disciples. Okay, I think they would have seen these two things kind of going together perfectly, kind of working in tandem um, to, uh, to, 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 to their concept of what it meant to go because Jesus had sent them. OK, but we are going to break it up a little bit just to help us understand what these two things look like kind of in depth. All right. So we're going to start with uh, part one today of this go section of our Go no Go Together series talking about service and what that actually looks like. All right. Now, Christians, I think, have always been called to have a special concern for those who are most affected by the ruin of creation, by the challenges of the city, of the world that we live in now, which is, you know, eagerly awaiting for the city that God will bring one day, right? People like widows, orphans, unemployed, oppressed and marginalized, unborn, refugees, migrants, beggars, diseased and suffering, all these different people who acutely experience the pain of sin and evil and suffering in our world. Right? And Christians, I think, have, have often thought it's good for us to partner strategically with organizations whose primary concern is giving aid to these people, right? uh, giving jobs, relief, medical care, whenever we can possibly do it. The challenge is it doesn't always seem like the church cares about it all that much in the present. But in reality, this is absolutely our legacy as a church. One I don't think we realize is true— it's not hyperbole, I think, for me to say that the church and disciples of Jesus have been the greatest force for social good in world history. And it's not even really close if you really study it. Right? So much of what we take for granted now uh, in our world was introduced historically by the church and followers of Jesus, right? Things like hospitals and schools and nonprofits are all basically Christian innovations when we study them right? Um, The YMCA is a great example, one of the 1st nonprofits ever. It started in 1844 out of a Bible study, where the aim of the people was to promote Christian values. Um, Hospitals, like the Mayo Clinic, for example, was started by a guy named William Mayo, who thought this is a great way for me to uh, follow after Jesus, is to create this space where we are going to bring healing to people. Um, We live in a world where Almost everybody knows how to read and write, right? It's very common for people to be literate. But the ancient world was the opposite. Almost nobody was literate, well, what happened in between? Well, it was largely Christians who said, hey, uh, this is a, a good for the world that we try to educate everybody, right? This is just uh, kind of part of the, 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 the mission that the church has seen itself living ever since the beginning. And it continues to be this way even in the present. There's actually lots of studies that say religious believers give more money to charity than their secular neighbors. They give more of their time to serving people, they even give more blood, like in blood drives and stuff like that. So this is a thing, it's been very Christian from the very beginning to take this idea seriously, uh, to listen to Jesus when he says, love your neighbor as yourself, or to hear his stories like the story of the Good Samaritan and think, this is what it must look like for me to follow after him. They understood that this was essential to discipleship, and so should we. And that's why we have this in our kind of framework for what a disciple is, as someone who goes. And by going, one of the things that they're doing is serving. So what I want to do for the rest of the sermon is I want to talk about three uh, points of what going and service looks like. Okay? For us to meditate on what it might look like for us to be disciples of Jesus as we go and serve, what does that actually mean? What does that actually look like? That's what we're going to talk about today. All right. So the three things I want to talk about is how Christian service is dynamic, Christian service is restoring, and Christian service is hope-filled. All right. We'll walk through each of those three today for the rest of the service. All right. First off, Christian service is dynamic. All right? Now this is kind of true of the whole go concept. It's dynamic. What I mean by dynamic is it's always moving because if it's not, it starts to, it starts to die. It starts to die off, right? Um, maybe you've heard this before. Some sharks, um, like the great white shark, for example, has to constantly be swimming, and if it doesn't, it'll die. Have you, any of you heard this before, right? Okay, the reason is is because sharks breathe by like taking in water, but they can't like suck it in. So they have to be moving or else there's no way for the water to kind of go in their mouth and, and go in their gills. And the faster they swim, the more water gets pushed through those gills. So if they stop swimming, there's no longer any water going into their mouth and therefore they're not getting any oxygen and then they will eventually um, die, right? So they have to always be moving. They must move or die. I think that's a really good picture of what it looks like to be a Christian, Right? Because when we stop moving, when we stop going, we stop serving and inviting, then I think we start to find our faith gets kind of stale and ingrown, right? We stop getting the necessary oxygen for a robust and healthy faith, right? Now, yeah, there are periods where we do need to rest, right? Sabbath is a principle that all Christians are supposed to have of stopping. And, 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 and I think even in our weekly uh, lives, it's good for us to have just even one day where we just stop, Okay? But we shouldn't have a whole life of Sabbath. Sabbath is supposed to be intermixed into the regular going that we have as disciples. Because a faith that isn't dynamic, it isn't always moving and going, starts to become very self focused. It starts to become very uh, navel gazing and self centered, right? All about kind of what can I get out of this thing? Rather than going and interacting and finding out uh, how much uh, th- this faith is actually about the people around us too. Right? In Matthew 28, 9, uh, 18 to 19, we have Jesus' sort of final words for his church before he uh, goes to, in heaven to be with God. And he says, Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore, go. Therefore, go. The number one thing he says to his followers is go. Right? Just think about that, right? His first description of the task that he was giving to us as disciples included the word go. He doesn't say make your soul focus yourself in some way. Rather, it's your own comfort or uh, maybe you know, uh, focusing on your mental health or kind of wallowing in your own frustrations or questions, really. It's just just go, just serve, just invite, just make disciples. Act like Jesus is the present and coming king, and it's not that Jesus finds you unimportant or you thinking about yourself unimportant, but it's that the rest of that stuff that we start to get so focused on when we're not going, it takes care of itself. It gets dealt with most of the time when we are actually just going, right? I think, I think it's easy to get derailed from the service part and also invitation when we have very maybe legitimate questions or doubts or baggage, right? It's, it's, it's very common to kind of want to feel like we have to stop, But I've actually seen people's faiths get really reinvigorated when they choose to not just wallow in that stuff, but to go, to go in faith. Because I think when we we quit thinking that Christianity is something, we, we need to always have everything figured out before we can go do something. When we just go serve like Jesus, things start to make a lot more sense. And that, I think, is what it looks like for us to take in the oxygen of God's love. For us and for other people, when we just go, we're like a shark swimming, sucking in that oxygen that we need to have life. Going allows us to experience that love, I think, especially when we're serving other people. We start to experience God's heart for them and their need to hear about God's love as well. We start to see and experience God's love when we're doing that ourselves. Now, when we go, we, like Jesus, bring restoration to people, and that's our second point here about how Christian service is restoring. Now, there's a lot of examples of this in Jesus' ministry, but let me give you two of them that we can highlight that kind of give us a couple different ways in which uh, Christian service is restoring to the people around us, okay? Now, the first one is from a story right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. It comes from Mark 1, verses 21 to 28. Jesus and his companions went to the town of Capernaum. When the Sabbath day came, he went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching, for he taught with real authority, quite unlike the teachers of religious law. Suddenly a man in the synagogue who was possessed by an evil spirit cried out, Why are you interfering with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus reprimanded him, Be quiet, come out of the man, he ordered. At that, the evil spirit screamed, threw the man into convulsion, and then came out of him. Amazement gripped the audience, and they began to discuss what had happened. What sort of new teaching is this? They asked excitedly. It has such authority. Even evil spirits obey his orders. The news about Jesus spread quickly throughout the entire region of Galilee. Okay, so this is, just think about what's going on here. Like I said, this is at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. One of the first things that he does in his whole ministry is to force evil out of this local synagogue, which would have been a, a religious and communal center in this city of Capernaum. Okay? This is a place where people are supposed to go to connect with God, to find shalom and wholeness, and, and in a lot of ways have different needs met. That's kind of the role that a synagogue would play in an ancient setting like that. But it couldn't do that. Just think about how it couldn't do that when an evil, some sort of evil spiritual force had come to reside there. That kept it from fulfilling its purpose. And so part of God's work in restoring creation, we see through Jesus, is banishing evil so that can't oppress and stunt God's spirit and love from coming to the people who need it, right? Christians, as followers of Jesus, we should love to see evil and sin be banished from our world because that is going to allow people to experience God's love. Now, there's lots of ways that we can engage in this um, practice of, of trying to banish and, f- and fight off evil that has come to reside in different places, right? It, it can come in the form of very practical ways of fighting injustice that, you know, we probably hear a lot about today, right? Resisting oppression, speaking truth or, uh, to power or sin, shining a light on corruption in some way, um, uh, sh- setting captives free, you know, these are very good and necessary practices for us as Christians to engage in, Right? And I assume you have some ideas of what that could look like. I assume you can think of places that you see corruption or injustice and want to join Jesus in trying to banish those from those places. But also, I think it's important for us as Christians to remember what we uniquely bring to this fight, too. Because it's not just Christians who see the need to do this. Um, Other people in the society do do as well, but we have an ability as Christians to, I think, be salt and light in the way that we do it. And one of those basic practices is by recognizing that there is oftentimes more going on than just the human component of things. Jesus' way of casting um, this evil out is to go to the root of the problem. It's to go to the dark spiritual force that's kind of behind it all. Right? which reminds us of this spiritual dimension that there often is in evil. And so when Scripture talks about uh, fighting evil in this way, we come to passages like Ephesians 6, which I, I won't throw on the screen here for you. I'll just summarize it. But it talks about like putting on armor like we're in some kind of actual struggle. And the way that Paul in Ephesians 6 tells us to resist evil is by doing things like just telling the truth, embodying the truth. Don't take on the... Um, the practices of the evil one that we're trying to banish by engaging in lying, right? But tell the truth, be honest, no matter where the truth leads us. Um, embrace holiness, right? Be holy in how we do it. Again, don't become like the evil we're trying to fight in order to to banish it, but embrace holiness. Be ready to spread good news. Trust God. Wield the word of God. Pray. These are the types of ways that Christians can uniquely add to uh, the fighting of injustice and evil in our worlds. Right? This is, a, 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 I think, a very practical and unique way that we Christians can help with it, too. So don't forget that as you go out and try to do something about evil in the worlds that you live in. Now, another way that Jesus restores is in his repeated healing miracles. And we have an example of that in Luke 5, uh, verses 12 to 13. Jesus is in one of the towns where there was a man covered with a skin disease. When he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged, "'Lord, if you want to, you can make me clean.'" Jesus reached out his hand, touched him, and said, I do want to, be clean. And instantly, the skin disease left him. Now, this skin disease is often translated leprosy. Maybe if you've read through your Bible, sometimes you'll find the word leprosy come up. And you're like, I don't know what leprosy is. Um, That's okay, because it probably wasn't actually what we think of as modern leprosy or this thing called Hansen's disease. It's some kind of psoriasis, maybe, or lupus or ringworm, something like that, okay? What matters is it's a, it's a kind of uh, skin disease that gave him a physical deprivation, but there's also a communal piece to it too, right? And that is behind his request to be made clean by Jesus. He's not asking for a bath here, okay? When he says, make me clean, Jesus, he's not asking for, uh, to be made clean the way, way me might, you might think. He's talking about ritual uncleanness, which would have kept him at arm's length from the community that he lived in. Right? There is this ritual purity and cleanness, and the people of God were called to observe it. Right, And it kind of wavered throughout Israel's history, but it was really popular in Jesus' time to uh, very, very strictly follow these ritual purity laws. Um, and that meant that unclean people, and there were lots of different types, and sometimes you'd be in it for a, you know, a short period of time, but then you'd be made clean again, um, but certain things like a skin disease would often keep you in a state of uncleanness for you know, and for, for maybe the rest of your life, right? And it would mean that you were not able to do the kinds of things that a normal person would get to do, right? So we can imagine that the problem for this guy is not just whatever physical discomfort that he's experiencing from this skin disease, but he can't do things like go see his niece that was just born to his, his, his sibling, right? He can't go celebrate that because he is unclean and has to be excluded from all the people who kind of have it all together, Right? So just you can start to imagine uh, the, the challenges of living with a skin disease like this for this man. And so by healing him, Jesus is restoring him in two ways. He is uh, making him physically whole and healthy. Right? This, this man is no longer living at the mercy of this chronic skin condition and all, whatever the symptoms were. We don't know what they were. Okay? But two, he's making him emotionally whole. By restoring him back to the community. And this is actually a really important part of the restoring work that Jesus does. Okay? No longer is this guy going to be known by his identity of unclean and therefore having to stay away from everybody else. Right? No longer is he going to be isolated and alone, a very taboo person who is supposed to be kept away from you know, respectful society. No longer is he kept at arm's length from things like getting to meet his newborn niece. And scholars regular, regularly point out that the whole point behind Jesus' healing miracles that we read about in the Gospels, it's, it's, it's supposed to, yes, heal them physically, but it's a sign that the state of affairs that mark God's kingdom have come about, right? It's not just a platitude that God's kingdom have come, but it, it's a reality. And people experience it in their lives by being made physically whole, but also being restored to the communities that they're part of. And so that means the kingdom looks like people being restored to health and wholeness in themselves, but also into the relationships of people around them. That's what it means for the kingdom to come. And so if we're going to be kingdom people, people dressing for the world that we want, we get to be healers too, right? We get to restore people to full and complete health in themselves, both uh, physically and mentally and emotionally, I think it's a beautiful thing when Christians serve in the type of helping professions that uh, make this a reality in our world, right? Doctors and nurses and PTs and psychologists and counselors and social workers and many other professions do this. And we have a lot of people at Red City, I know, that work in these different helping professions, which is a beautiful, beautiful thing. We're saying it, You should see your work as kingdom work. Okay? But you don't have to be in a helping profession to be a restorer where you are either. Okay? Um, there are lots of situations that it's very common today where estrangement and lo- loneliness are created in different groups of people, right? It could be at work, someone who's ostracized for some way. You could, it, it could be in your family, right? It could be that you've got the weird uncle who no one talks to because of something he did so long ago that no one can even remember, but he's not really invited to family functions anymore. He's kind of treated like he's really basically not part of the family. We all have situations like this that we live in where we are finding people who are experiencing these, these types of being held at arm's length from different relationships that they're in. What if Christians took it upon themselves to be healers of sicknesses like that too? What if we said this is a way that we can be restorers and healers like Jesus did as well? After all, the gospel says that we have been restored to full relationship with God through Jesus, right? Whatever banishment or being held at arm's length that we previously had from God's presence is gone because of Jesus. All that means is that we get to be creative and find ways to mirror that restoration that's been done for us back to God in the world around us too. Now another good reason to serve is that it does something to us as well. And, and Heather Tremaine um, here goes to rest City. She leads this thing we do called Care Portal um, here at rest City, and um, she has this. I asked her to kind of uh, because she does so much of the leading and the work of service that we do here at the church. Why she you know thinks service is valuable, and she she asked me to share this. Okay, so I got this uh, I got this for her for, on on her behalf, and I think a lot of what Heather says really. Um, helps us to to, to see the importance of what serving does to us as well, okay? So she starts out by um, reading James 1.27. Religion that God our our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. She says this. I'm going to read. It's It's an extended quote here. I think most people would agree that as far as biblical directives go, this is a pretty straightforward one. It's not controversial or difficult to digest. We understand why Jesus would call us to help those in need around us, and we have the desire to answer that call. Practically, though, it can be more difficult. What if you don't personally know or naturally come into contact with people who have these needs? I often struggled with this or felt the temptation to just throw money at different causes. Giving money is, of course, not a bad thing and is often needed, but I also found myself reflecting that if I want to be the hands and feet of Jesus, maybe I should serve more often in ways that, surprise actually require the use of my hands and feet. It has been great to become part of Care Portal this past year and see how God is using Res City to meet needs in our immediate community in a personal way. Care Portal needs mainly center around serving children in our community, improving the safety and well-being of a child, helping reunite a biological family, or helping prevent a child from entering the foster care system by stabilizing a home. The goal is to have the, close, the closest local church meet the need and to do so in person in order to make an actual connection with the people that we're serving. Um, I think Heather highlights not just you know, the needs or the, the what if, but what it does to us too. And I think that's a really important thing for us to understand when it comes to serving. Okay? To put it in the parlance of this series that we've been talking about, Go is also a great opportunity for you to grow. Right? If you remember what Julie said last week, we can't grow if we aren't prepared to really give something up that we value or cherish. Right? It changes us when we go and serve and it helps us to grow more like Jesus, to bear more fruit, which we, again, have said is an essential part of discipleship. And some of the things that we get to give up when we go, are things like grudges, uh, giving up what, you know, what we actually find to be valuable, or giving up wrong reasons for service. And I'll just talk about each of those briefly here. I think a, a reason sometimes we maybe don't want to serve is because it's uncomfortable or hard work, um, you know, we have to sacrifice. But to be honest, sometimes we don't want to see people get restored. Right, like maybe there are people in our lives that we don't want to see restored in some way. We're mad at them, or we just think that they're people who deserve whatever's happened to them. They're lazy, they don't work hard, whatever it is. This is what they should get, right? And we still see this sort of political rhetoric sometimes get used about the poor and marginalized to treat them with disdain. Um, and sometimes we treat people in our own family that way too, right? We're called to give that up, to give those grudges or those preconceptions of people up in order to just serve them and love them like Jesus does. And that's a way for us to grow, is to give up the kinds of things that kind of keep us, I think, stuck a lot of times in being the type of people who are in many ways not like Jesus. Another way that we can grow is by being willing to sacrifice some, the things that are actually valuable to us. Right? Heather talked about how a lot of times, you know, depending on your state in life, sometimes it's easier to just give money than it is to actually get your hands dirty and be the actual hands and feet of Jesus. Sometimes it doesn't stretch us that much to take five minutes to go on some website and donate a little bit of money. What really stretches us is the thing that is more valuable to us, which is our time right? Um, That's the kind of thing that we find valuable. And giving up what is most valuable to us helps us to be more like Jesus too, right? So consider what is it that I find truly valuable and is there a way that I can maybe give that up to help serve people too? And then finally, we can give up the wrong reasons sometimes for serving I think one of the things that gets us excited to serve a lot of times is that you know, we think we're going to go change the world. Like, we're, we're, like us getting in the game of serving is going to you know, uh, you know, completely like change, change affairs in the world. But life has a way of really smacking you in the face and letting you know how irrelevant you can often be sometimes, right? In reality, the, the best work that we often do it, you know, might change one person's life, but it's not going to change the system that, were, that, that created the conditions for someone being in a position where they needed your help, right? Um, it takes massive, overarching, coordinated efforts over long periods of time to really make change, the kinds of things that people have to dedicate their lives to oftentimes. And for whatever reason, a lot of times we don't have the ability to do that. And so sometimes it can start to feel like when our service isn't making an impact, that we aren't changing the world, we start to find ourselves getting less motivated and feeling like it's not that important for us to go because nothing's happening. What's the point, right? But I actually think if, if we give up the wrong reasons for serving and we have different reasons for serving, that's going to be the thing that sustains us to continue to go and serve people, right? Growing more like Jesus doesn't look at our feelings of irrelevance when we serve a lot of times and find that our work is not doing as much as we might have hoped. It doesn't treat that as an obstacle, but it actually treats it as an opportunity because it sees in it a way for us to grow more like Jesus. So let God use that. That's an opportunity for you to grow more like Jesus, right? And, and this is one of, I think, the reason for this is, okay, and like this is one of the most important things I want you to, to hear in the sermon today. When we start to feel irrelevant, we start to be able to identify with those we're serving, that makes us better at it, right? People who are in need of being served or helped, right? Widows, orphans, starving, sick, poor, diseased, uh, impoverished. These are people who feel irrelevant too. And when we start to feel irrelevance, we can start to connect with them and find true and deep love for them, where they're not just a charity case, but they're people we start to understand and love. Right? A lot of times it can be hard if you're in a place of comfort and stability to really understand the people you're serving. But when you start to find spaces in your own life where you're, you're not as good as you think, you start to feel irrelevant in some way, you start to be able to connect with them in ways that are really incredible. And it makes you better at serving and loving them. Right? And what it does is it, it points us back to the gospel. Right? We are irrelevant, all of us, because of our sin. And we have no ability to save ourselves despite our irrelevance that God comes to make us something in Jesus, right? We never brought anything to the table in the first place. And the more awareness of our irrelevance that we have, the more we can truly experience and see the need to go back to God for his grace. And the great message that we start to proclaim to people is not that, you know, we're so great because, you know, we've come to save you, right? We get to be your great savior by coming and helping you out. But we're people who also are aware of our irrelevance and we want to serve you in that, out of that, out of our love for you. And when we truly grasp that, we become better servants of the people that we're serving. We serve not because of what we can do, but because of our own spiritual poverty and our belief in who God is. And that takes us to this last point. As we start to grasp this, the last piece of Christian service that I want us to consider is that Christian service is hope-filled. Christian service is hope-filled, okay? Remember what Jesus says in Luke 5.13 to the man who comes and asks, if you want to, you can make me clean, and Jesus tells him, I do want to. There's a lot of hope that we can draw from that statement about who Jesus is and what he wants to do and what, how much hope he wants to give us, right? Jesus wants to heal. Jesus wants to restore. Jesus wants to cast out evil. He wants to respond to your ills and the ills of society around us. And that hope that Jesus wants to is necessary for us to go because it gives us a why, right? It gives us a why. Hope is not just a feeling that we have that things are gonna work out, right? Or just kind of keeping an eye on the future, Right? thinking about what will happen someday, but really not having it change anything about us now. Um, hope is attending to earthly life in a manner worthy of the gospel. That's what M- Michelle Clifton Söderstrom writes, talking about Christians in the 17th century Germany who embarked on incredible social reform. Okay? We keep an eye on the future for the benefit of the present, right? Because we need hope to keep going, right? The doctor is never going to run out of sick people to treat, The advocate for justice is never going to uh, completely get rid of whatever injustice they're fighting, right? The psychologist is never going to run out of people whose mental health needs to be restored. The social worker is never going to run out of kids to serve in broken homes. Um, Some families are never going to run out of their grudges, right? As Jesus himself says, the poor will always be with you. If you don't have hope, you are going to get chewed up and spit out and overwhelmed by the weight of whatever problem it is you're trying to serve someone in the midst of. And that allows the problem to continue to flourish. Brian Stevenson, um, he's the author of a book called Just Mercy, A Story of Justice and Redemption. And he's an attorney and and a leading voice for criminal justice reform, founded something called the Equal Justice Initiative, Um, And also who is a Christian, talks a lot about the importance of hope for us as we are people who follow after Jesus and trying to do something about what about our world is not as it fully should be and will be one day. He says, hope is your superpower. Don't let anybody or anything make you hopeless. Hope is the enemy of injustice. Hope is what will get you to stand up when people tell you to sit down. Fear and anger are the essential ingredients of injustice injustice and oppression. Injustice prevails where hopelessness persists. We have to have hope to keep us going. We have to keep our eye on what it is that God wants to do in the future and what Jesus says now that I do want to do something to serve people. Ultimately, it's that hope that Jesus is going to do what he said in Revelation 21, what we read at the very beginning of the sermon. That's what we as people, the people of God, hope in, and that's what keeps us going in the moment as we go and we try to serve in the world and the places that need it. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to transition here into a time of communion and worship, um, as we always do. And as we do, I'd like you to, depending on where you're at, maybe consider a few different things and bring them before God right? Um, it's a chance for you to maybe reckon with your feelings of irrelevance. Whatever those are, wherever you feel like helpless or hopeless in some way, imp- use that, that feeling of irrelevance as a chance to, to as an opportunity to go to God And to have him meet you with his love. And also to be reminded that there are other people who feel irrelevant too. And this is a chance, you know, maybe for you to think about what it could be like to also meet them in their irrelevance, right? It's a chance to confess to God and let him remind you that he doesn't love you uh, because you are relevant. But he loves you in spite of your relevance. And he brings us into relevance through his grace. And it's a reminder also when we take communion that Jesus died And he died so that he could be raised again to give us hope that even the worst injustices, like his own unjust death, right? Jesus' death itself on the cross was an an example of the injustice in the world. The guy who was completely innocent was still crucified on a cross as if he was a criminal. It's a reminder that God is undoing those types of injustices and will undo them one day finally in the future, and then lastly, uh, one last thing for you in communion. If, you've, if you feel like you've never met the Jesus who says, I do want to, this is an opportunity for you to maybe meet him for the first time, to find out that he does love you, that he does want to restore you back to wholeness, that he does want to give you a hope for a future someday. And this is a chance for you to maybe meet him for the first time. Let's pray, and then we'll head into that time of worship and communion. Lord, we thank you that you do not look at our world as some lost cause. You do not look at all of the problems that we see in our day-to-day lives, God, whether it's in our families, whether it's in our neighborhoods, and the cities that we live in. Lord, there are so many issues in this world that um, it seems like it would make sense for you to just give up on it, but you don't. Lord, you put in the hard work to restore it and make it whole, and you will do that one day finally through your son Jesus returning and, this, and bringing this new city to earth, Lord. But I pray that in the moment, as we are people who live animated by that hope, that you would help us to go and to serve the people in our city, in our communities, in our neighborhoods, in our families who need it most, Lord, so that we may be people uh, who embody heaven on earth now, who are dressing not for the world that we have, but for the world that we believe you will bring one day. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.